Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyber Labs, and today we get to talk to Remus Benavichus. And Remus is a principal at the Embark Investment Group and chairman of the board of Rover Wheels which we'll hear more about. So he's also located in Madison area, so this interview we get to do in person. So Remus has quite a background. He was a CEO of Sonic Foundry in Madison for a long time, until about 2011. And since then he's invested in, served on boards, and co-founded uh, different companies, which we'll hear more about. So I'm definitely excited to hear more about his background, and what he's learned, and what he's up to now. So Remus, thanks for uh, joining us today. Yeah, thanks Dave. So. Uh, yeah, before we get into what you're doing now, which I'm especially curious about, you know, can you tell us a little bit about your background, how, how you landed at Sonic Foundry, and what you were doing before then? Yeah, I've spent a good chunk of my early career being an engineer and uh, doing a lot of interesting projects across multiple industries. Uh, ended up uh, in the, amongst other things, NASA, working um, on a SBIR project in a small consulting firm and then moved into medical devices, which is what I was trained in. Uh, Wait, what UW. were you for NASA? We gotta hear it. You can't um, say NASA. It was, a, <laughs> it was a 3D accelerometer based system huh. that measured astronauts motion in zero-g environments back in 1987, so wow. way before anybody even knew what a 3D accelerometer was. Were so. they large at that point? No, they were still. They were, were the very small. first silicon-based uh, accelerometers. Wow, but they were, were they a lot more expensive? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. They were, and they were larger in terms of silicon, but uh, they were the first silicon-grade accelerometer. So, so why did NASA care? Well, they wanted to know if somebody was turning upside down, or what? yeah, basically to okay. track motion. Okay. And, All right. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Yeah. <laughs> and then I got into a bunch of healthcare related things. I was uh, trained in the biomedical engineering department. I was an electrical engineer, but the biomed was a subspecialty when I came here for grad school So, at UW-Madison. So um, yeah, I was in cardiac pacing equipment, worked for a company in Chicago that basically did transesophageal pacing. So if you had a bariatric or a heavier, uh, heavier patient, what have you, someone that couldn't use a treadmill, uh, you would basically uh, have an electrode uh, injected in your esophagus and it would pace the heart so you'd be able to detect stress huh. uh, in patients. So that was a rather interesting company and uh, ultimately ended up in industrial processing, industrial controls and food processing. Uh, I designed the uh, control system for the world's largest beef jerky line. So if oh you know about <laughs> Good Mark Foods and Slim Jims, that was partly my duties along with my other fellow employees. Um, I, so I've always wondered, I, how do they... Snap actually, into a Slim Jim, I, was not, I, say? I was not expecting this, but this is, <laughs> I've always wondered, like, how do they take, 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 you know, go from meat to that? So It's an ugly process. You don't, don't want to know. You don't want to know. All right. Because I do like those, but... All right. It's so, yes. And by the way, the best hot dog you'll ever have is uh, coming right off of an Oscar Mayer hot dog line right in the factory. There's nothing better. Really? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> interesting. So you, you did that too? Or you're... Yep. Yep. So then uh, that all preceded... Uh, uh, a whole business path that I was taking and uh, I ended up uh, getting my MBA at University of Chicago doing the uh, 
the weekly grind in the executive program driving wow. down from Madison to Chicago and did that for two years and uh, ended up um, simultaneously as I was about to graduate um, hooking up with Monty Schmidt over at Sonic Foundry. He was a longtime buddy of mine and he had gotten the company going along with his partner Kurt. And so this is about 1995 and uh, I decided to take the leap and jump into the startup scene with the boys and <laughs> we proceeded to start building up that entity. So what, what, what were you doing at Sonic when you first joined? Was uh, pretty much everything that wasn't engineering. Okay. So um, <laughs> I, I had actually, I don't want to <laughs> lay claim to this, but I actually did write some code initially back in the early 90s to help Monty, but ultimately they were looking for someone to help negotiate their business deals okay. and do marketing and sales and finance and all the stuff, you know. Yeah. I was the fourth person or fifth person. Wow. So uh, most all of their st stuff was development up to that yeah. stage. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, so we came in and uh, started that in January 1st, 1995. Wow, okay. And uh, how soon was it before you started getting a traction and, and some clients? Uh, actually, it happened very quickly and simultaneous to really my arrival because at the time um, we cut a deal with, uh, oh, we were negotiating a deal, I should say, with uh, Macromedia, which ultimately was uh -huh. bought by Adobe. And so they were looking for an audio uh, editing tool to round out their Windows platform. They had the Mac side locked down, so they needed an audio editor for Windows. Uh -huh. And they had heard about us and knew that this was the best audio editor in the market, even though it was under the radar. And uh, we ended up cutting a licensing deal. So Macromedia originally wanted to actually approach us to buy the company. Right. And we spurned the offer and instead made more money off the OEM licensing with them. And you know they were heavy-duty distribution in those days, I mean, worldwide. So we sold a lot of products through them. We also then subsequently licensed with Microsoft. Uh, sold probably the first uh, MP3 player for Microsoft, uh, so hmm. they licensed that from us. Um, what you guys developed the MP3 player? Yeah, like the a software. Yeah, exactly, a really? little software player that they that. distributed. Okay. This goes uh. back now to like 1998 or so, um, and this all kind of preceded MP3.com and yeah. Napster and all that stuff. We were we wow. kind of the whole world of sound editing and stuff, we were you know, right in the thick of it. And we were making a move towards video um, based on the other co-founder, Kurt Palmer, who came out of Microsoft. He was convinced that um, really there wasn't a sufficient video editor on the Windows platform, So, and we needed another tool to round out our, our uh, editing suite. And so we put a lot of resources into doing that, developing it, and ultimately anticipating the world of streaming audio and video and online um, and so we were really the one of the first uh, companies providing tools to accomplish that. And what what did uh, if you remember what what's some of those licensing deals of like with like Mac Media? Well, they look better <laughs> back then than they do now, probably. I mean, <laughs> the whole world flip flop. Back then, you actually could derive you know a dollar a copy or yeah, you know, something yeah, yeah. like that. Uh, now, I think a lot of the software providers actually pay the OEMs to sell their product like you'd get on a laptop or something um, because the assumption is people will upgrade and they'll make their money that way so you know getting real estate on a laptop is a big deal um, but back then you actually got paid for it so it's a good deal gotcha okay um, and what was uh, what was one of the best learning experiences there what what did you or what did you enjoy doing 
or uh, what was a tough lesson you learned? Or uh, now you're asking too many questions. Yeah, I know. All right, so so many. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the most interesting thing was probably just uh, cutting our teeth and learning the whole uh, management process. Um, running a fast growth situation is not something that you, anybody can really be ready for. Yeah, so yeah. it's learning like on the job training, if you will, and a lot of uh, high paced high. Uh, high-paced environment in a city like Madison which probably wasn't your east coast west coast yeah. environment so that was kind of cool we were uh, you know moving at the pace of those folks uh, even though we we're here in Madison having to recruit people and grow the business a lot of people couldn't believe that we were in Wisconsin at the time now it's probably not as surprising because we've had a lot more startup activity here but back then uh, there really wasn't much to <laughs> speak of. Yeah, was there anything else going on? No, I think, yeah, as a matter of fact, Epic might have had like still around 10 employees or so <laughs> back then. Um, they have more now. Yeah. <laughs> a thousand times that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, no, it was uh, it was a lot of university research, a lot of, um, you know, professors that would license technologies, that sort of thing, and but not really, um, you didn't have like a, a, a big push in terms of uh, management that could run companies like this and similarly uh, Wisconsin back then was very conservative on capital raising so you wouldn't find a lot of people putting risk capital in play to fund a startup um, so we ended up finding our investors out of state pretty much exclusively until the IPO in 1998 and uh, quick IPO Three years. Yeah, we went wow. IPO on a little over three million of revenue. Really? You don't do that anymore. <laughs> you don't see that anymore. No, you don't <laughs> see that anymore. Uh, but that was a uh, very special time for a lot of companies that were actually going public. So, uh, are you I, glad they went public? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was an interesting experience. Um, if for no other reason than that and the fact that the capital was available to do stuff and allowed us to do stuff that otherwise we wouldn't have been able to do um, and it was a interesting niche product that resonated with end users uh, you know for example when we marketed our IPO we got to one of the guys in ZZ Top who evaluated huh. the product and uh, so you know just running into people like Joe Walsh and uh, Mick Fleetwood and people like that that um, sort of understood what we were doing uh, and were uh, in an indirect way supporters of our company through the way we licensed our software and you know through the acid loops and things like this that we would uh, kind of contractually uh, have agreements with them so it was cool to be exposed to that world and I think uh, Maybe that's sort of the, a message there that um, there's an opportunity to raise capital when you go to the user base itself. Mm. Um, and uh, that's, yeah, I think, where there's a lot of future opportunity as well for some of the companies that we're involved with now. Really? To raise money from the, the users? Did you guys raise money from the artists or the users? Yeah, you it, did. Yeah. Yeah. basically, it'd be maybe through a money manager for yeah. artists. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, and would you have a, looking back, would you have? Well, you probably have done different things differently, but uh, anything uh, major that you're like, oh, we really messed that up, and th I would never do that again. You know, I don't know. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, isn't it? So, um, uh, yeah, I think if there was something you would, if you had the ability to foresee April of twenty or two thousand when the market imploded, um, you probably wouldn't have. Been, we wouldn't have been as aggressive um, 
with the ramp up of employees, acquisitions, mm -hmm. things like that. But it was also the market momentum that was happening. And yeah, at the yeah. time, it was a little bit uh, amusing, or bemusing is a more appropriate word, that the big companies um, were really torqued off at us small startups having the valuations we had. Um, you know, companies that <laughs> revenue-wise would be maybe 10 times bigger than us would be trading at a quarter of our market value. Really? What was the highest market value? What was we uh, so on a 25 million dollar run rate? So we went from uh, three million to 25 million or so in a couple of years. Really? Um, huh. We had a two billion dollar market cap, <laughs> and because of the because of the growth, yeah. and we weren't certainly the only company. Yeah. Uh, you know, there were. A thousand companies like us at the time. Uh, the companies being rewarded were the ones that actually put forward the most aggressive business plan and the biggest vision for what the future, in our case, of audio and video would be. Yeah. So, and we weren't wrong. I mean, we were absolutely right. That's true. <laughs> right. Now, if you look at like how our world is being impacted, you know, every you're creating this off of a phone. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and I clearly remember discussing exactly this concept that wasn't available in 2000. Huh. But that this would be the future way wow. of recording. Huh. So um, yeah, the day has come. And how? Uh, and this is the last question on a sign found you. Well, let's say I think of another one. But um, what did it look like uh, pre meltdown, financial meltdown versus a post like the number of employees and? Yeah, know? we had about five hundred at our peak. Wow. We had uh, I think seven locations, including Europe. Um, and uh, we were burning probably seven million a quarter. Okay. Um, and we had a significant capital raise lined up. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was in New York trying to raise capital uh, when the market started imploding, oh, and suddenly no. the doors weren't being opened. Uh, to, <laughs> they weren't very receptive, let's just say. Uh, but uh, maybe contrary to what um, a lot of companies did, we. We did a lot of tough cutting. It was there were a lot of tear shed, but we didn't uh, completely uh, bail out. And a lot of companies just had they just completely bailed, bankrupted their companies, and they went away. Uh, we actually preserved the equity of the stock. We did um, some things financing wise in terms of selling our assets, which made maybe some people unhappy but it allowed the company to survive and we pivoted into what we thought would be a more lucrative market. So you mentioned earlier the uh, the margins on OEM and software and yeah. stuff like that, you know, coming down. Uh, we were identifying that uh, business streaming applications and specifically online education, and, uh, a video management platform, things like this would be much more lucrative and so we really uh, banked on that yeah. and we went from back down to zero revenue 25 employees and have had sold uh, two divisions of uh, our company to survive and then basically ramped it back up so now the, I think the company is doing about I left five years ago but the company is doing maybe 40 million of revenue yeah. so it was a nice recovery um, uh, but a lot of people and situations they would have bailed on the on you know tough times ahead so. yeah definitely all right uh, yeah I mean and do you think it'd be a more helpful if that IPO market was uh, more accessible by the smaller companies? I mean, obviously you were small when you went to the IPO back then. Do you think that uh, would be helpful to have? Cause now, 
you know, you have to have, well, I don't know, you know better than me, but hundreds of millions or at least uh, tens of millions of fast growth in order to access the, or, or to do an IPO. Do you think it'd be helpful to go back to the well, late, late 90s when it was easier? Like, I'm not saying like necessarily the valuations, but. Yeah, no, I think the, there are, maybe hybrids of that solution starting to show up and uh, specifically um, specific ways that you can do general solicitation and crowdfunding and uh, raise equity through a more of a, a broader distribution platform but not necessarily be burdened with the quarterly mm -hmm. duties of reporting and which, which is a real handicap for micro-cap companies. The other being is that um, unless you have enough of a shareholder base, it's really hard to get liquidity and proper trading in stocks like that, uh, which is problematic if you want to be public. So the combination, what really killed it was Sarbanes-Oxley because there's just, there's way too many rules and regulations now on public companies. Uh, and it's not really fair to the small companies who don't have thousands of employees and all of the procedures that they have under Sarbox um, don't really work very well for small companies. So small companies have gone down the private equity path more often, you know, venture capital, private investors, um, and that's likely a more efficient market. Uh, and in a lot of ways, it's, it maybe is benefiting those companies better because uh, they're, they're, if they have the IPO wind or market blocked from them, they really are going the strategic path. Mm -hmm. They're looking for strategic mm -hmm. investors. And so you could argue that they're probably maximizing their value and finding exits faster than they would if they were a public company. Gotcha, okay, all right. So uh, can you tell us a little bit what, what you have going on now? What, yeah, so we so I'm a principal in uh, a group called Embark Investment Group. Uh, we are headquartered in Tampa, Florida, but I'm uh, working uh, the Midwest market on developing Embark's presence. Um, what it is, is it's a boutique investment bank that's able to do the private placements I described, and specifically under the new regulation that came out and passed last year uh, after the jobs bill passed in 2012. And it allows for what's called a Reg D 506C offering. And the uniqueness of that sort of an offering is it allows for companies to generally solicit investors as long as they meet the accredited investor rules. Um, so literally you could put a billboard out on the street mm. and say <laughs> Acme uh, software is looking to raise five million dollars. Call 1-800-BLAH, you know, or send in your email request here. Uh, <laughs> the beauty of that is is that prior to that, most offerings have been under the Reg D regulation or 506B offerings. And that literally required you to know who your investors were, uh, and therefore it truly limited the scope of people yeah, that you yeah. could go out and reach. So this is a really powerful distribution tool that they opened up at the SEC level to allow for much more um, broad distribution and it maybe addresses the question you asked about uh, why don't companies do more IPOs or should they? This is perhaps the middle ground that the regulators um, felt would help companies enough to raise capital that they need. So there's no limits really on the amount you can raise. Um, there are uh, certain criteria you have to deal with that we haven't found very onerous but initially some people had a little knee-jerk 
if you participate in a 506c offering, the one difference in the rule now is that you have to verify that that accredited investor is indeed accredited. So you can go and get the affidavit from a lawyer, an accountant, money manager, that the person themselves, if they provide a tax return or an investment statement. Um, but it has, that hasn't been a big issue uh, for the offerings we've put out and uh, it's worked pretty effectively. So we think it's a really powerful tool going forward. And um, so we're in the process probably with about uh, six to 12 different companies right now vetting them for this particular kind of a process. There is no pure industry play. Uh, we've got an offering on the real estate side. We've done pharmaceutical deal. Uh, we're looking at a, a fixed income product and then we've got a couple, a number of things going on on the Internet of Things side of uh, okay. the business. And then also uh, working with a couple of other investment banks on syndicating deals. So sharing ideas and being able to cross sell uh, and cross-promote the offerings. Um, so it's a it's an interesting market. The reason that we also think it's uh, an eye-opener for entrepreneurs is because prior to this, you know, the, the only gospel that anybody heard was you have to go find a venture capitalist. You have to go find a venture capitalist. Well, you know, 2% of companies maybe get venture capital. Yeah. So what do you do when you're looking for Series A money or Series B and no VC wants to look at your deal? Uh, there are some really great businesses out there, and you know, sorry, I'm not the next Facebook, right. but I might be able to create a hundred or two hundred million dollar business. So why shouldn't those businesses get funded? And we think that this is a great way to do it. Hmm. Interesting. And so, who, who's in your network as far as investors? Like, who do you, what type of people do you reach out, or entities do you reach out to? Yeah, typically these offerings are interesting into high net worth individuals. Okay. Um, and then family offices, um, there are certain funds, in some cases there's actually venture funds that will participate because uh, they're similarly looking at themes and what have you and uh, they don't necessarily want to carve up the deal entirely for themselves. Um, so the typical um, you know, group of candidates you'd find. Gotcha, okay. And, uh, and so how do you, so I mean, do you approach this almost as like a, you know, almost like a VC, like, you know, you have to do a lot of due diligence and make sure that uh, you you trust the, your clients before you go out and pitch them. So uh, what, what's your process to like, find a client and then bring them in? And Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is, it's, so we're a lot further along than maybe what you'd see at the incubator stage where there's a lot more risk involved and, yeah. you know, raising $500,000, everyone's doing that all day long. When you start uh, raising, say, two to $5 million, Presumably the company has a greater track record, they've brought in people, uh, they've established a presence, and so you have at least more data to go on. Um, there's also a little bit of a character check, you know, it's it's, it's just like anything. You, you want to work with people that um, uh, you're comfortable working with that seem to be honest and trustworthy, that have, you know, sincere interest in growing their business. Um, so, um, you know, it's a, it's we're able to vet companies along those lines, along the other traditional lines of due diligence, you know, audited financials yeah, yeah. and everything else that's available. Uh, and uh, so it really depends on where the companies are at um, in their development stage. Um, but there's quite a bit of uh, that whole upfront process that goes into it yeah. as well, just like on a VC deal. So do you have, you know, you mentioned uh, that they might be raising two to five million. Is that kind of a sweet spot? For you yeah, we usually just, get between a million and twenty million or okay. offerings. And do they? Have, most of the comp most of the companies have been around for a while, have revenue, 
probably not cash flow positive necessarily, or what's kind of the a typical, or do you have an exa- or can you give an example of one of your portfolio companies you're, you're looking at? You don't have to give me like. Yeah, uh, we just recently did a pharmaceutical deal with a company called Altathera, um, and uh, you know that's a company that's um, developing a portfolio of uh, orphan drugs um, that are uh, either off-brand or underutilized or what have you, and so um, yeah, that's that's a situation where it's a potentially high-growth scenario. There's immediate revenue there. Um, so they're already realizing really, revenue. Really, revenue. Yeah, because their their strategy is actually um, marketing and selling drugs that have already gone beyond FDA approval. Okay. Um, so that allows for them to actually realize revenue quicker and sooner, and ultimately be a good uh, strategic fit. Um, so that sort of a company is a good example um, on the software IT side of things. Um, usually, it's a scale out process where some company needs to. Uh, build out, you know, maybe double, triple staff in the next year, or really blow out marketing, uh, and they're entering a fairly hot sector. I mentioned IoT, you know, that's a, a pretty hot sector right now. So there's good comparables out there in terms of um, the value that people have attached to these companies. They have to have a big enough um, footprint or vision for what they're attacking. Um, but ultimately, the the structure there would be to help give them enough runway for at least a couple of years, and perhaps then find a strategic investor. Uh, perhaps they would be ready for an acquisition at that stage, or they'd be uh, looking for follow-on capital because they've successfully okay. continued to grow during that time period. I mean, the key to all of this is growth. You have to be able to demonstrate growth, otherwise you're just dead in the water. <laughs> Makes sense, and uh, so how do you, how do you find uh, potential investments. They find you, or are you beating down doors? Yeah, they actually you? find me. So they, okay, uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> probably more than you need sometimes. Yeah, yeah. We um, we have our own. You know, we have a pretty broad network of deal flow, and I mentioned also that you know, our partners on the, you know, other investment banks are showing us opportunities as well. So, uh, and then of course, um, I mentioned that we're not really. We're not really the door's not open for the typical incubator that's you know got to yeah, prove themselves yeah. out for the next year. So that really filters the list quickly for the people that can escape that process and you know successfully and move to the next stage. Um, so when they move to that next stage, that's when we become interested. And if it's an idea that we think our investors would like, um, then maybe that's where the marriage happens. It has. It's not so much even me liking the idea. I have to know that my investors that's actually what it's like. like it. Yeah, like if, we, if you see a company how do you know that they're going to be fundable? Like, do you kind of run it by some of your investors saying like, hey, what do you, okay, before you? Yeah, we do kind of a, it's not, I wouldn't say we have a process, a fixed process for it, but we'll, we will put uh, companies in front of investors and start doing the kick in the tires test and seeing, you know, if there's interest. Um, And uh, if they like the idea and uh, likewise, we'll bring in industry advisors who can see what the other guys are playing because often, you know, here in Madison, maybe we have more of uh, blinders on uh, than other parts, you know, like San Francisco. You'll find out, you know, there are 10 companies trying to do the same exact thing <laughs> right. you're doing. Right. Um, so it's good to know what everyone else in the industry is trying to do or who's attempted it before. Gotcha. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, what I always hear is like, how do you find those advisors? Because like, what if it's, I guess the pharmaceutical one, there's probably somebody, you know, who might know a lot about orphan drugs or a particular space they're going after, but like IOT is so broad, you know, you know, I guess if they're going after, let's say the manufacturing environment, maybe there's people you know, yeah, just people in your network that you know, is that the... Yeah, well, there's a lot of people on the professional, um, you know, usually industry conferences, speaking tours. That's true. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of folks that have that sort of built up expertise so they can be brought into these situations. Okay. And a lot of them, that's how they earn a separate portion of their income. They actually consult to the mm-hmm. companies and help them along. Okay. So by the time you sign up a company, you have a pretty strong feeling you'll be able to fund them mm-hmm. with your kind of pre or pre due diligence. Okay, and how do you, uh, yeah, how do you guys make money? Do you just charge fees based on well, yeah. Raised? yeah, okay, yeah. Um, so the difference is that um, you know it's sort of the devil in the details with the VC deal, right? Because you'll end up with. Uh, participation and liquidation rights and things like this which mm-hmm. nobody can really rationally calculate yeah. so it's a way to sort of disguise the real cost of doing a VC deal that they don't want to talk about it's like very hush hush quiet yeah, quiet yeah. don't talk about it <laughs> you're on the QT um, in our case we actually have just like a company that would go public it's all straightforward it's uh, fees and uh, usually a warrant component so we have some upside in the companies, but that's that's the full extent of our compensation. Okay. So there's no cram down processes, things like that, that we're taking as an entity when we're bringing it. However, you know, there we will do offerings that might be preferred, and okay. they might have similar terms like VC deals and things, but that's on a case by case basis. Generally, we like to keep the cap table as clean as possible, um, meaning uh, we don't like to see. Um, uh, preferred C, preferred D, uh, onerous terms, you know, uh, three times uh, uh, type of uh, um, liquidation preferences, etc. So it's, uh, it's one of those things where it's a deal by deal basis and whether the entrepreneur has been smart enough to, to keep their uh, balance sheet clean. And what about, uh, um, you know, like a follow on round, like how do you, you know, if a company is raising two to five, there's, there's a chance they might have to raise, you know, let's say 10 to 20 or something down the road. Yep. Um, like, would your high net worth individuals participate in that round or how to... Well, it probably starts moving towards um, a little bit more of the institutional and strategic, strategic investors yeah. Yeah. Um, who can easily do that. And at that point, you know, the growth component probably implies the strategics are getting interested. So. Uh, whether you want to partner up with one entity who might own 20% of the market and it might limit you with the remainder of the market, but at least you sort of get a, an idea of the playing field and who's yeah. interested in what you're developing. Gotcha. And, and how long has Embark been around for? Uh, we started in 2012. Really? Wow. All right. And how many deals have you done? Um, we really weren't getting active until the last year. Um, oh, so really? we, you know, So we've done... Say six. Wow, he isn't pretty active. Then. <laughs> That's a lot in a year. Okay. Uh, and how do you guys, after you help raise money, how, do you stay involved with the company at all, or you just kind of do you take a board seat or anything? I mean, yeah, yeah. We'll, uh, well, it's not necessarily something that we will, you know. For example, if we if we brought in a, a bigger, larger investor, 
uh, perhaps that person would take a board seat okay. and we would be offered the ability to assign the board seat to someone okay. uh, within our discretion. So yeah, it's uh, in similar ways it's like uh, you know, kind of a VC deal. You might demand that depending on the situation. Um, and, and you know, you said you want to keep, keep a clean clean cap table. So do you, like if you get like 10 high net worth individuals, like would you create an entity and everyone invest in one? Would they invest like as an Embark, uh, Embark like a investment fund or do they all invest individually on the cap table or how do they show up? It can be both. Okay. All right. Yeah, you can take a limited partnership and uh, they can, you know, that allows for people to pool their capital with smaller dollar amounts and, you know, the entity itself comes in is considered the larger, um, you know, one entity with a larger dollar amount. And then there are other high net worth that will uh, maybe be equal to them because they have more capacity. Okay. So, and this is a general broad question, but, uh, you know, how do you see startups messing up financing? Um, I know it's kind of a broad question, very broad, but, um, you know, is there, uh, yeah, you know, if if you were going to have some, write a a short book, (laughs) we probably don't have time for it all, but. (laughs) Well, let me. Let me just put it this way. Yeah. My venture capital friends won't like me saying this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but when we went, when we did Sonic Foundry, uh, we, uh, the only people that had preferred were the three founders. And everybody else was common stock. And that was through several multiple rounds. And so, in theory, this is a hypothetical. VCs don't like this. Don't like people say this. But why should... A later stage round have preference over the people that took the mm, earlier risk, mm. and and why mm. shouldn't you just keep offering common? Perry Passu all the way through, yeah. And that's the biggest mistake that entrepreneurs make because right now the way the market's moved, everybody thinks that that's the only way you can do it. Mm. But you have if you have a strong enough company, a strong enough story, you can dictate terms and say all my offerings are going to be common shares. You know, I'll just, uh, you know, if, if I was, uh, and that's probably what's, it, it sort of relates to me what's happened with uh, Facebook and Snapchat and things mm. like that, where those guys have been able to dictate the terms at an IPO um, point. Yeah. Because, of, and that gets more into the control issues, board control issues, and voting rights and things like that. But it's because they had a strong hand to play. Yeah. And so it really depends on how strong your hand is. And you don't necessarily need to bend over on the term sheet just because the first guy shows up and says, I'm going to give you a Series A, but I'm going to need all these extra uh, voting rights and protections and things like that on the downside. Um, so that that's the sort of... Uh, dirty secret that's out there that entrepreneurs probably aren't as aware of as they should be but and can you uh kind of describe what you mean by preferred shares for the the folks out there you mentioned like voting rights and stuff but yeah Yeah. can you uh describe what you mean i mean it it can be different things but yeah Yeah, so if you uh let's say you price uh, your latest equity round at five million dollars so the company's worth five million and uh, let's say a million of that uh, was preferred um, so, you know, Common was ahead of that, the founders were ahead, or the first initial investors, and now you brought in some preferred. Well, if, if uh, the proverbial, uh, you know, what hits the fan, um, and the value of the company goes down, and you're looking to raise additional capital, guess who gets 
blocked out of the deal. All those initial investors and preference is superior to the common, so the preference basically owns the company at that stage. So all those common shareholders can be wiped out, and then those preference shareholders can then continue to keep moving the company forward, except they're basically the only mm. stockholders in the company. Yes. Okay, that's good. Thank you. And uh, all right. And so then we're going to talk a little about some of your other investments, but uh, like uh, roll wheels. Wow. Um, but where do you want to take Embark? I mean, um, or as the company as a whole, do you want to continue to do more financing? Do you want to get into larger financing? Um, or just kind of keep doing what you're doing? I know you've only been doing it heavily for a year now, but yeah. Um, yeah, I think right now we're just focused on getting more activity deal flow-wise. I'm actually in the process of recruiting other financial um, licensed financial okay. professionals. Okay. Um, so you, you need to have basically securities licenses to do what we're doing. Yeah. Um, and so there are a number of people that Wall Street's been squeezed, you know, from the standpoint of less IPOs. So there are experts in capital markets and fundraising and things like that that um, might be interested in joining a boutique. Ultimately, what we've seen historically with a quote-unquote boutique investment bank is you sort of outgrow your initial market thrust. So the reason we're playing in this market, the one to 20 million, is because the big guys will never come down market mm -hmm. to this size. Mm -hmm. uh, but if we're successful, our deals will get bigger and bigger and ultimately we'll outgrow ourselves. And it's because you know it probably takes as much effort to do diligence a $1 million deal as a $20 million mm -hmm. deal. And so it's just obvious, where would you put your resources? <laughs> right. You're going to make more money on a $20 million deal. Because the fees don't necessarily go down a whole lot on a $20 million versus a $200 million deal. It Correct. Like yeah, you get a little bit of a discount, kind of but not that much. Yeah. 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 So it's, yeah. Okay. Interesting. All right. So if we talk about some of the... Well, I know about roll, roll wheels. That's so hard for me to say. <laughs> it's like a ton, ton twister, but... Talk, talk about that, and do you have some other stuff going on beyond besides that? Sure. Okay. Yeah, Royal yeah. is uh, yeah. it's a pretty cool company. Yeah, we're um, sort of at the. Um, it's, it's what's interesting about it is that the wheelchair industry, you know, has been around for what five thousand years. I don't know how long people yeah. have used wheelchairs, <laughs> and there hasn't been a lot of innovation, with the exception of um, lightweight materials. So in the last 10, 20 years, what you've seen is the use of aluminum titanium, carbon fiber, reducing the weight of manual wheelchairs. Uh, no one's, there's been some attempts to uh, change the propulsion system uh, and really we've come out with probably the uh, smallest, uh, lightest form factor for allowing a wheelchair user to propel themselves more uh, efficiently throughout the day. And so why is this important? Well, we have a massive um, problem with obesity and hypokinetic disease and diabetes and so many wheelchair users you're never going to see. They just struggle in terms of their day-to-day -day, um, getting in, um, just getting to and from a living room and a kitchen. Um, and so Row Wheels helps address that problem. It's, it's a product that's expanded now along a product line, high-end and low-end. The most exciting thing there is that 90% of the wheelchair users are buying product at less than $1,000. Therefore, they're buying a very um, inadequate product, in our opinion. And so we're going at the market thinking almost like the exercise equipment guys. Um, so 
one of our, our sales and marketing head is formerly from Bowflex and Nordic Trek. Hmm. And so think about a wheelchair that's related somehow to that kind of a concept. Um, a, a more of a mass consumer product, high quality, but something that can really break that thousand dollar price barrier and get more higher quality wheelchair um, mobility in the hands of people around the world. That's really the okay. overall strategy for Rollwheels. And we just brought on a new CEO. Uh, I was the CEO for uh, a good four years or so. And uh, so Fred Minderman has just took over a couple weeks ago. Uh, he's a med device guy and uh, has been around the world um, in other industries selling products in the medical device field. So we're excited to have him on board. Gotcha. What is the price point for? You probably have different models, but yeah, we're going to be anywhere from say five hundred thousand, five hundred dollars to uh, three thousand okay. dollars for All a right. set of wheels. And uh, ultimately, our strategy uh, starting in two thousand eighteen is going to include selling undoubtedly some sort of a complete system. So far, we've been just a retrofit system. Oh, so really? We've oh. had a wheelchair frame. You yeah. can get rid of your wheels. You put row wheels yeah. on. But that's not an easy market entry point because people don't necessarily want to take their wrenches out yeah. and equip them. So uh, coming next year, hopefully, we'll have um, some solutions for people that want to just buy a complete chair out of a box and have a wow. on. Okay. Are you, uh, are you guys raising money at all? Or are you guys... Uh, yeah, we you know? uh, can't really talk about details on it. But all right, yeah. fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> you know all the laws. <laughs> all the rules and regs. Um, all right, and so, uh, and how many people work at uh, Roll? Um, there's uh, 10, 10 folks, and we expect that by in a couple of years we should be up around uh, a little over thirty. Wow. Okay. And I mean, the idea one is that you kind of you pull right instead of push. Or yeah. Is that still, like that's my understanding. That it's a lighter weight, so it's just a lot easier to be mobile. Is that the yeah. biggest thing? Yeah. Is that when you're pulling, you're using eight of nine muscle groups. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so you have a lot more power and the oxygen consumption is much more efficient because you're spreading oxygen throughout all those big muscles instead uh -huh. of the small muscles here. And so it just uh, allows the body to be much more efficient. Interesting, interesting, okay. Um, any other uh, companies you're working on or want to mention? I know that one you're heavily involved with or you were, <laughs> you still are, I'm sure, but. Um, yeah, yeah, no, the only other company, yeah. well, there's a couple of other companies that are probably not as uh, interesting to your Okay. Listeners, but, uh, one is in the real estate market. We're doing a multifamily project in uh, Illinois. Oh, cool. Um, 280 unit apartment project. Whoa. And uh, so there's a huge demand right now for multifamily. Uh, the demographic is such that people from 20 to 35 are maybe seeking apartments uh, and staying more in apartments than seeking a house. And then we have this baby boomer world that's selling off houses and wanting to get in apartments. Yeah. And then of course you have construction shortage um, in terms of just uh, labor. So there's a real, actually a strong nationwide demand for multifamily yeah. right now. So we're getting pulled into some financing opportunities on that front. Um, and then we're doing uh, some interesting financing, fixed, uh, fi fixed uh, income types of product and financing related to jet fuel. Um, so interesting. You probably can't share. I'm curious how that works, but it's <laughs> way too much detail. Yeah, that sounds good. Fair <laughs> enough. All right, so we're almost done. But uh, um, I was curious. You know, we've been in Madison for a long time in the tech community, and uh, well, we might, we kind of talked about how there weren't many other tech companies in the area back in '95, '96, '97, and uh, um, but uh, yeah, what, 
I was curious if you have any other thoughts of how it's changed or how you, where you hope Madison goes as far as the tech community. Um, you've been heavily involved for many years. So yeah, the good yeah. news is I think you know when you compare notes and people that are seeing other pockets of activity around the country, um, we're getting very favorable reviews about the support infrastructure we have here, whether it's the on the government side. The QMBV tax credits are phenomenal. I can say this from the standpoint of investors who absolutely love them and the benefit it provides in the companies that actually apply and have them. It's, it's done a phenomenal job of getting companies yeah. off the ground. Um, and then uh, just sort of your, you know, all the sort of gatherings and things, literally there's probably a, uh, you know, a happy hour networking <laughs> event every night of the week here if you wanted to find one and so it's very easy to connect into this uh, community to get stuff going and uh, and I think that now there's a little bit of a dynamic starting to brew between Madison Milwaukee Madison Chicago and that triangle um, virtuous triangle of technology so hopefully there's a lot more cross exchange of ideas yeah. and companies and things and the capital seems to be flowing across the border correspondingly no, that's great. Okay, and uh, so on a personal level, outside of work, what do you what do you like to do? How, what do you like to do to get away from work and stop thinking about it for a few moments? Uh, golfing. <laughs> golfing. All right. Nice. Where do you like to golf? <laughs> uh, I'm a member over at Blackhawk, so oh, yeah, I play there with my buddies. And uh, <laughs> other than that, uh, it's probably you'll find me walking my dog a lot. So. Oh, yeah, nice. <laughs> kind dog. Yeah. Uh, we have a Shiba Inu. So he's a great dog, seven years old. It's a Japanese oh, breed. Nice. All right. Well, uh, yeah, I think that uh, just about does it. I think this is a long, long one. So uh, really appreciate your time <laughs> and uh, love to hear stories about Sonic and what you're doing now with Embark. It's pretty interesting. So uh, thanks for uh, joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Dave. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of uh, Flyer Labs. As always, I, I greatly appreciate it. And uh, I'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Remus. Bye.